From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Please Explain. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. It's Monday, November 27th. When you go to see your doctor and they give you a medical opinion, based on established guidelines by a governing medical body, you tend to trust them. But what if there's been a hidden flaw in the scientific community for years? One that can lead doctors to recommend certain drugs or treatments that are based on studies that end up being deemed untrustworthy. Today, National Science reporter Liam Mannix joins me to discuss the worrying rise in retracted scientific papers and what we should know about how clinical guidelines are created. So Liam, you've spoken to a woman who had a very stressful pregnancy because she was told that she was at risk of a preterm birth and she was offered a particular hormone to help prevent this condition. So can you tell me about her experience? Yeah, this woman was having twins, which is obviously really exciting, but also somewhat scary, particularly when she was told that she had uh, what's referred to as a shortened cervix. And that combination comes with some risk, risk in particular of preterm birth. The baby's coming a little too early. Doctors are very keen to avoid babies coming too early if they can. Obviously, you know, we want to keep the baby in there developing and growing and having the best chance to sort of flourish. Uh, So they take as many steps as they can to try and get the baby as close to full term as possible. And one of the treatments that the woman who spoke to us was offered was a was a hormone called progesterone, which is used to try and reduce the risk of preterm birth. And so where did this recommendation come from? Okay, so this is where the story gets interesting. You would think that this would be a recommendation that would be based on the best available science. And in some ways it is. But when you trace the actual genesis of this recommendation, it takes you on quite an interesting global scientific journey. Now, in this case, we have a set of guidelines that are put out by the expert college here, the Royal Australian College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. Those guidelines recommend this treatment for twin pregnancies that are at high risk. So far, so good. What are these guidelines based on? They're based in part on a meta-analysis conducted by a global team of researchers that was funded by the US government. Still sounds great. We've got a guideline based on US government-funded research. But then you go a step deeper. You go down a layer. What is the meta-analysis based on? And it, in fact, is largely based on a study that was conducted in Egypt. And this is a study where, as we'll get into, there are some questions. You can sort of imagine the way that science works here as a bit like building a house. So you have a foundation that is laid, and that is this study that's done in Egypt, actually testing people. And then you have, you know, the walls and the roof of the house, and that's the meter review that pulls together all of these studies. And then you have all the internal furnishings, the stuff that actually interacts with you as a person, and that's the clinical guidelines. But the important thing to remember is that those clinical guidelines that we interact with are built on the basis of these studies of people that could be done anywhere in the world, including in this case in Egypt. Okay, but in 2021, that Egyptian study, which in part underlies the progesterone treatment, was actually retracted by its host journal. So why was it retracted? 
Yeah, now we get to the interesting stuff. Now, there's a lot of conjecture around this study, but I just want to read the retraction note. So that's the note that's been affixed to the study by the journal. Here's what it says. The authors did not obtain approval from a research ethics committee before conducting this interventional randomized controlled trial. Concerns about the data reported in the article are under investigation by the University of Mansoura. That's the university in Egypt that offers the affiliation for the scientists who did this study. And it's also important to note that the authors of the study did not agree with the decision to retract the paper. Now, fortunately, the woman that you spoke to did have a safe full-term pregnancy. But if the guidelines included a retracted study, was the advice and treatment she got correct? That's a great question. And I think there is some controversy over it. So certainly the Royal Australian College of Gynaecology stands by its recommendations. They have pointed us to another meter review. They say that came to the same conclusion and that did not include this retracted study. The authors of the original American meter review concluded that once they removed the Egyptian study from their data, they didn't see a signal that suggested that progesterone reduced the risk of preterm birth in twin pregnancies. So the college stands by their data, but there is perhaps a level of controversy around this that was not apparent in the original clinical guidelines. The other important point here is that this study, the one that underlies all of this, was retracted several years ago, in 2021. Why was it still in the guidelines? Because there doesn't exist a system in science for automatic notification all the way up layers. So the people who do the meta-analyses might not be aware that they have a retracted study, and the people who write the guidelines based on the meta-analyses often are not aware. Now, the college in this case, after we made them aware, says that they are updating their guidelines, but it seems kind of crazy to me that we don't have some sort of automatic system warning people that their high-level science might be built on shaky foundations. Okay, so there was a failure of the meta-analysis to pick up on the quality of this particular study, and there's a broader lack of communication, I guess, within the medical industry or scientific circles. But let's talk about the source of the problem, the scientific studies themselves. There seems to be a lot of scientific papers that are retracted. So what is going on here? And are we seeing an increase in this happening? Scientists describe this almost in terms of money laundering. They call it paper laundering. So as we saw, these studies can enter the medical literature and work their way up through meter reviews and through guidelines into things that influence human health. But the original studies themselves can be ones that if you looked at closely, you'd go, oh, should we really be basing our health outcomes on this? Now, we've mentioned an Egyptian example because in recent years, perhaps in the last 20, we've seen an intriguing new trend in science where a number of countries, in particular Egypt, Iran and Turkey, have very significantly increased their scientific output. Now, you'd say that's a good thing. We would like more science to be done. We would like all countries to be participating in the scientific process. But what we've also seen as these countries have dramatically increased their output is a significant increase in retractions of studies authored by academics working in these countries. And so that raises this broad concern are we starting to fill the scientific literature up with papers 
that are perhaps less trustworthy than we would like. And because we're not watching that problem at the foundational level, are those less trustworthy papers making their way up into high-level science and clinical guidelines? And I think the evidence that we have so far is that they probably are. Certainly what we're seeing is significant increases in retractions across the board. Australia itself, which is, you know, considered a country that produces very high quality scientific research, has had about 500 retractions just in the last 20 years alone. And it's worth saying that retractions are probably the tip of the iceberg of unreliable science. It's very, very difficult to get a paper retracted. Nobody in this system really wants a paper to be retracted. The scientists who did it themselves obviously don't want to. The journals don't want to because it makes them look bad. The universities that employ these scientists don't want to because it makes the universities look bad. Everybody's interest is to not have these papers retracted, except for the patients. And the patients simply are not at the table when we're discussing all of this. We'll be right back. One expert you spoke to said that he's particularly concerned about the proportion of women's health research in particular that may be based on untrustworthy studies. So why would this impact women's health research more than, say, research affecting other genders? It's a great question. It's a historical issue. We simply haven't done enough research on women. Professor Ben Mole from Monash University has spent years tirelessly working in the women's health field because he fears that it has been substantially infiltrated by dubious science. And even after all of his work and his campaigning, he reports extreme levels of frustration because it is so hard to convince journals to do anything about this. The fact is that scientists for a very long time didn't really like doing experiments on women. First of all, there was a concern about the effect that an experiment might have on a woman's pregnancy. You might find that understandable, but it does mean that we don't have enough high-quality evidence in the area to really guide clinical judgment. But secondly, scientists like to do experiments where everything is consistent except the thing that you're testing, you know? you know that your population is going to be the same and then you give them a drug and you see the effect. Women have hormonal cycles and so they change over time. And scientists are just like, oh my God, that's too hard to have to deal with. And so for a very long time, we've had this tremendous paucity of high quality women's health studies. That means that if there is a significant problem with untrustworthy studies in women's health, it has a really outsized impact because we don't have that bedrock of high-quality studies to ensure that we know how to give women the best possible care. So it's a problem that is both you know, modern and scientific, but it's also really foundational to the way that science has thought about women for a long time. And I think it's fair to say that we all assume that health guidelines and recommendations are based on reliable, robust and regularly updated scientific studies, especially from credible institutions like the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. So what do we need to do to actually remedy this problem? That's a great question. and I think it has answers at several levels. So science really is only now waking up to the problem of untrustworthy research. 
And what they are finding is kind of scaring the pants off them, to be honest. So, for example, Cochrane, who produces the world's sort of gold standard research, has been looking at this closely and has discovered that perhaps a very significant number of its studies are tainted. So what they and other groups are doing is building tools that can test studies, not just for bias, which everybody knows about now and works hard to avoid, but for trustworthiness. You know, a test of, are these numbers, is this data likely to be real? It sounds unusual, but we think that we probably have to do it. So that's one part of it. We also probably need, and this may be the hardest bit, a cultural shift among journals and amongst universities to accept that they have a problem, which at the moment they're very reluctant to do, and then to do something about it. Put in place practices that promote high-quality research and scholarship and take action when instances of misconduct are detected or, or at least alleged. Those are going to require significant cultural shifts for the scientific industry, which for a very long time has been regulated based on trust and really, you know, self-regulated largely. But we are also getting to an interesting spot where science is starting to change. It is firstly really difficult to make new discoveries now because a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been picked. On the other hand, we have grown up a scientific industry where your success in your career is governed by your ability to make discoveries that end up in leading journals. And we've also encouraged a lot of people to go into science. So suddenly we have an industry that is quite large, is dependent on the taxpayer for support in a lot of cases. And all of these people are essentially competing to get on the front cover of nature. That creates this quite perverse incentive for researchers to perhaps make their results look just a little tiny bit better than they are, make their graphs look just a little bit more perfect so that they can get their publication, so they can get their promotion, and so that they can keep getting funded. It's really problematic because you see an industry that once was just striving for simple discovery is now striving just to stay afloat. And I do think that that cultural change is starting to produce some of the things that we have talked about. You know, concerns around study trustworthiness. I think that there is a real cultural question for science that it's going to need to answer in the next decade. Thank you so much, Liam, for joining us. That was so fun. Thank you for having me. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Julia Carcatzel with technical assistance by David McMillan. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. Please Explain is a production of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Samantha Salinger-Morris. This is Please Explain. Thanks for listening.